Hello, and welcome to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, college professor, PhD student, and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five, but if I had a six or a seven or a ten, it would definitely be the highest number on the scale regardless. It's the story of how one of America's most notorious serial killers escaped from prison in Colorado and made his way to Tallahassee, Florida. While there, that escaped convict, the infamous Ted Bundy, entered the Chi Omega sorority house on the campus of Florida State University. Once inside the house, he killed two young women that night and severely beat and injured two others. Then he fled the home and made his way to a duplex down the street where he beat and nearly killed a fifth woman the same night. This episode is titled Florida State Slayings. So without further ado, let's get started. On the morning of January 15, 1978, a member of Chi Omega sorority, Nita Neary, said goodnight to her date and headed inside the back door of the Chi Omega house on the campus of Florida State University. It was late, or technically early, at 3.15 in the morning, and it was cold, especially for Florida. It was only about 20 degrees outside, so Nita raced inside as quickly as possible to escape the freezing temperatures. As she was going into the living room, she heard footsteps coming down the stairs. This wasn't completely out of the ordinary because, after all, she did live in a house with several other sorority sisters. But what was out of the ordinary was that the person coming down the stairs, she soon realized, was a man. And males were simply not allowed upstairs in the house for any reason. However, it was dark, with only lights glimmering from outside through the windows, so Nita couldn't make out the man entirely. She just saw a figure of a man in the shadows, and he was holding an object of some sort that appeared to be some type of club or log in his right hand, and his left hand was resting on the front door of the house. He was obviously making his way to exit the home, but for a few seconds, Nita did get a good, decent look at him. According to an article in the Chicago Tribune, for three whole seconds, count them, one, two, three, Nita focused on the man's profile in the near-dark, partially lit room. As soon as the man left the house, Nita ran upstairs to wake up her roommate, Nancy Dowdy. Nita told her what she just saw, so the two of them went back downstairs to check the front door together. They didn't find anyone around, though, so whoever was inside the house was now gone. But Nita and Nancy were still freaked out and unsure of what to do about the situation. So they went back upstairs to wake up the Chi Omega president, who actually came out into the hall to talk to them about what Nita had just witnessed. 
Just then, as they were all three standing in the hall, it was now 3.19 a.m., only about four minutes after Nita had arrived home, they saw Karen Chandler open the door to her room and she began staggering down the hall. At first, Nancy wondered if Karen was sick or maybe she had a little too much to drink that night or something, so Nancy followed her in the other direction down the hall. As she passed Karen's room, she looked in to see Karen's roommate, Kathy Kleiner. Kathy was sitting on her bed, legs crossed, rocking back and forth. She was calling for her boyfriend and church pastor. She was also holding her chin in her hands, and they were full of blood. Nancy continued following behind Karen, though, because now she knew that something was very, very wrong. She realized that Karen Chandler was also bleeding profusely from her face. So Nancy took Karen into her room, into Nancy's room, and put Karen onto her bed. At this point, Karen was holding her arm, like cradling it kind of, and she kept sliding off the bed, but Nancy kept putting her back on. Meanwhile, according to the Chicago Tribune, Nita, the one who saw the man at the door, ran to wake up another one of their sorority sisters in the house, Patty Landers. Nancy, then, the one helping Karen, called police from a phone in the upstairs hallway, and Patty also called police from a second phone line in the house. Both calls were received at approximately 3.21 a.m. While Nancy left Karen to call police, two other Chi Omega sisters, Terry and Carla, tried to help Karen. Terry asked Karen what happened, and Carla gently held Karen in her arms, who was bludgeoned so badly that Carla didn't even recognize her own friend in front of her. Before police arrived to the house, though, the ladies discovered yet another, even more horrifying scene. In a different bedroom in the hall, they found Margaret Bowman on the floor, lying there, severely beaten and lifeless. And in yet another room, Lisa Levy was literally fighting for her life. According to the Chicago Tribune, Diane Cosson went down the hall to stay with Lisa. Diane held Lisa, talked to her, tried to keep her friend talking and alive. Lisa was bleeding so heavy that Diane's bathrobe was soaked in Lisa's blood. Here's the thing. At this point, the ladies of Chi Omega had no idea what actually happened. They didn't realize that not only had four of their sorority sisters been brutally beaten, but some of them had been raped by their attacker as well. By 6 a.m. that morning, a few hours later, police had arrived and cleared the crime scene. The Chi Omegas, though, they were all interviewed, fingerprinted, and asked to call their parents. Then, police sealed off the house and told the ladies to find lodging elsewhere until further notice. Although Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy did not ultimately survive the attack, Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner did. But they were severely injured and remained in critical care in the hospital, not to mention emotionally and physically traumatized beyond measure. You see, the details of the attacks are very, very gruesome, and I'm going to share those details with you over the next couple of minutes, so fair warning to brace yourselves or skip ahead. According to a Rolling Stone article by Tori Telfer, Ted Bundy, whom nobody knew was responsible for the attacks at the time, entered the house through a broken combination lock on the back door. Also, before he entered, he picked up a thick log to use as a club from a stack of firewood that was also lying in a pile by the back door. 
Then he made his way upstairs and first went into the room of 21-year-old Margaret Bowman, who was sleeping alone. There, he delivered a crushing blow to Margaret's forehead, and then he strangled her with a pair of pantyhose. He then crossed the hallway and entered 20-year-old Lisa Levy's room, where he also beat her, but then he raped and strangled her as well. According to the Rolling Stone article, Bundy sodomized Lisa with a hairspray bottle and bit her with his teeth. He bit her so hard that the indentation of the bite marks would be the first piece of physical evidence connecting Bundy to the crimes. But I will come back to this a little later in the story, as my skin is crawling with pure disgust and terror right now. After this, Bundy made his way into Karen and Kathy's room. As he did, though, he stumbled over a trunk on the floor that was positioned between their two beds. That commotion startled Kathy, and she opened her eyes. Kathy told Rolling Stone, quote, I remember the noise of the trip and something falling off the trunk, and that woke me up. The room was dark, and I didn't have my glasses on, but I remember seeing a black mass. I couldn't even see that it was a person. I saw the club, saw him lift it over his head, and slam it on me, end quote. Then, in a flash of seconds, Bundy swung around and delivered a blow to Karen as well, who was sleeping just across from Kathy. The beds were so close together that Bundy could easily hit Kathy with one end of the log or club and then spin around and hit Karen almost instantly with the other end. He hit the two women multiple times, but before he could actually deliver a death blow to either one, he was startled by a pair of headlights that shone directly through Kathy and Karen's bedroom windows. Remember the sorority sister who got home late after a date, Nita Neary? Yeah, as a sheer blessing in disguise, or honestly a blessing in plain sight, Bundy was spooked and scared off by those headlights that flooded through the windows of Kathy and Karen's room, which was Nita and her date pulling up to the back of the house. Apparently, it was very unusual for Bundy to leave a survivor, but now we know why he did in this particular instance. Kathy said, quote, I saw the light. It was like God's light. I remember thinking, oh my God, something cleared the room, end quote. Now, you might remember in the introduction of this episode, I told you that after Bundy fled the Kyle Omega house, he still wasn't done with his crimes. Just six blocks away, Bundy attacked Cheryl Thomas in her duplex. Cheryl was also a Florida State student majoring in dance, but she was not a member of the sorority. Regardless, though, her attack was no different than the others, and she, too, was incredibly lucky to be alive. Cheryl told 48 Hours the next day that, waking up in the hospital, she couldn't tell you who she was or where she was. Her parents had to tell her what happened by slowly breaking the news to her. From the attack, her jaw was broken in two places. She had a dislocated shoulder and five skull fractures that left her permanently deaf in her left ear. When Bundy did attack her that night, Cheryl's two neighbors in the duplex beside hers heard the commotion and called police relatively quickly to report it. Cheryl said that if her neighbors hadn't heard her crying and screaming and literally the sounds of someone being beaten to near death, Cheryl doesn't believe she would have survived. Apparently, from what I gather, the police sirens scared Bundy off, just like the headlights did in the Kyle Mega house. The sheriff at the time, Ken Katsaris, told 48 Hours, quote, 
We were outside that evening when all of a sudden I get a radio communication from the sheriff's office that there is something going on at a duplex. A young lady who lived there alone and the next door neighbor hearing some beating, some sounds, this is going on less than six blocks away. I sent an investigator there and found Cheryl Thomas on the floor in blood and had been beaten badly. I thought, could this be the same individual? And I said, how? We've got such a police presence. How could that person just go a few blocks and strike again? It was inconceivable, end quote. Karen Chandler also remembers waking up in the hospital in intensive care the next day after the attacks. But similar to Cheryl, she too had no recollection of what had happened. She knew something bad had happened, of course, but she didn't know exactly what. Though her parents were hesitant about how to even begin telling her what she experienced, they knew she'd see something on the news soon enough, so they told her about the attack and how two of her sorority sisters had not survived. On an episode of CBS's 48 Hours, Karen explained that she had one skull fracture, a broken arm, and a couple of crushed fingers, and nearly every single bone in her face was broken, including her jaw. However, her parents didn't let her see herself immediately in the mirror. She was basically unrecognizable, and her parents didn't want to put her through that emotional pain that would add to her physical pain. But Karen knew she needed to look so the reality would set in after she realized what happened to her. She told the Chicago Tribune, quote, I remember being in the bathroom in the hospital, and my mother stood in front of the mirror so I wouldn't see myself. But when she left, I looked. My face was real swollen and puffy with one eye completely closed. My mouth was a wreck, but I could see I had two eyes, a nose and ears. I had a brain. I could still see me there. That was something. That was a lot. End quote. Kathy Kleiner, Karen's roommate, was also in bad shape in the hospital. Kathy told Rolling Stone that she had a shattered jaw, a torn right cheek, and she had nearly bit her tongue in half. According to 48 Hours, her jaw was actually broken in three places, and her injuries were so bad that an oral surgeon had to later re-break Kathy's jaw, and then it was wired shut for nine whole weeks. But still, she's grateful that she survived, and so are Karen and Cheryl. On January 22, 1978, about a week after Bundy brutally attacked all those women, police reopened the Kyomega house. The Chicago Tribune reported that the ladies of the sorority came back to a house covered in fingerprint dust from top to bottom and yellow crime tape across bedroom doors. Apparently, the house remained that way for the entire winter quarter. Meanwhile, though, police still had no idea who they were looking for at the time. So they asked the sorority members about their boyfriends and acquaintances, but obviously they couldn't connect anybody they interviewed to the crime. So they had no leads whatsoever and definitely no idea that this was the work of a serial killer. And for 30 days, a whole month, the students of Florida State University walked around in complete fear and anguish, constantly looking over their shoulders and sleeping with one eye open. In a 2018 editorial in the Tallahassee Democrat, Dina Williams-Newman described the climate on campus in those 30 days after the women were attacked. Newman was a Florida State student at the time, so she remembers the campus environment and how scared people were in the days following the attack. 
Newman said male friends would sleep in the lobby and halls of female dorms, and they frequently walked females to and from classes. Also, female friends would often band together and lock themselves in a room and just stay put for several days at a time to ensure their safety. Newman said that many females were afraid to go to the bathroom alone, and they would even sleep in fear with a baseball bat next to their beds. Also, because police didn't have a suspect on their radar immediately, they thought it could possibly be someone targeting members of the Chi Omega sorority specifically. They thought this because apparently six months prior to the attack, another FSU Chi Omega had been raped, beaten, and left for dead in a field outside Tallahassee, according to the Chicago Tribune. However, after everything came to light, that appeared to be completely isolated and not related to these murders at all. But because police did not know this at the time, they instructed the ladies of Chi Omega to distance themselves from the sorority. This meant not wearing Chi Omega paraphernalia and scratching Chi Omega stickers off their cars so they wouldn't be recognized if they were being targeted. Finally, on February 15, 1978, a month after the brutal attacks and slayings, police announced the arrest of Ted Bundy for the crime. But let me tell you the story of how they finally caught this SOB. Apparently, around 1.30 in the morning, he was driving an orange Volkswagen Beetle. You know, a slug bug for those of us who grew up getting punched in the arm every single time one was in eyesight of anyone in my immediate family. Yeah, one of those annoying little cars. <laughs> and I guess he was driving like oddly slow and basically just loitering. Plus, it was at night and the car's headlights were off, according to several news articles. Really, dummy? You've committed all these heinous crimes, but you're so narcissistic that you think you're untouchable or something? I mean, I know the dude had escaped prison twice, actually, but he thinks that he's that slick that he can just drive around with no headlights and just go unnoticed by law enforcement? What a freaking tool bag. Anyway, <laughs> moving on with the story. The police officer clearly took notice, ran the car's plates, and pulled Bundy over near Pensacola, Florida. At first, Bundy claimed to be a Florida State law student, but he refused to give the officer his name. Well, this was a huge red flag, obviously, and the officer soon discovered that the car he was driving matched the description of a car that had been stolen from a location near the Chi Omega sorority house. After a high-speed chase, I mean, seriously, how fast could that beetle even go? <laughs> but after a chase ensued with police, Bundy was finally caught captured and thrown right back in prison, especially after they realized that he was Ted Bundy, a serial killer, the serial killer who escaped from Colorado. When they searched the VW bug he was driving, they also found dozens of stolen IDs and credit cards. Oh, and remember how I said this was actually Bundy's second prison escape? The first time happened when he was incarcerated in Aspen, Colorado, and he literally jumped out of a second story courthouse window and ran off. But let me tell you how this sleazeball of all sleazeballs escaped the second time. And let's just say that planes, trains, and automobiles is an understatement. According to ABC News, Bundy escaped from the Colorado prison via an air vent in the ceiling of his cell that he had literally dropped at least 20 pounds to fit through. He crawled through the air ducts, just like in a movie, y'all, until he eventually dropped down into an empty jailer's apartment. 
He dressed in civilian clothes and walked right out of the prison walls into the night. He then proceeded to board a flight to Chicago, and from there, he took a train to Ann Arbor, Michigan. He somehow found a car, or stole a car, most likely, and drove down to Atlanta, Georgia, where he then got on a bus to go to Tallahassee. According to Larry Simpson, a retired assistant state attorney, Bundy arrived in Tallahassee around January 8, 1978, and rented a room in a boarding house adjacent to the FSU campus. So, for about a week before his brutal attacks, he basically scoped out the campus and planned his moves. In the 48 Hours episode, investigators compared Bundy to a shark, as in, after his second escape, he needed to feed. So he quite literally went on a feeding frenzy, except for him, it was a killing frenzy. That makes me loathe this man and his awful, dreadful crimes with every fiber of my being. Especially because, listen to this. About three weeks into police's investigation after they arrested Bundy in Pensacola, police learned that a 12-year-old little girl had disappeared from her school in Lake City, Florida, which is about 90 miles from Tallahassee. According to ABC News, that child was Kimberly Leach, and she is believed to be Bundy's last and final victim. 12 years old, you guys. However, they didn't find her body until a few months later in April 1978. ABC News reported that Kimberly had been raped and assaulted, and then Bundy placed her inside a little shed that was located in a wooded area behind a state park. This man is scum, plain and simple, and let's recap. After his second prison escape, he killed Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy. He nearly killed Karen Chandler, Kathy Kleiner, and Cheryl Thomas. And then... He wasn't satisfied enough, so he went and took the life of an innocent child, 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. Pure evil. That was the epitome of this man. But sadly, no matter how evil and terrible Bundy was, he simply didn't look it. He didn't resemble a serial killer in any way, shape, or form, at least not on the surface. Even Kathy said, quote, the first photo I saw of Ted Bundy after they arrested him, he didn't look like a serial killer. He looked normal, end quote. Sheriff Ken Katsaris said, quote, his charm, his wit, his intelligence, his charisma, everything about him made him different than all other serial killers, end quote. After his last arrest in Florida, investigators began building their case, and they developed a theory that Bundy actually targeted Cheryl Thomas, the woman in the duplex off campus, first. They thought this because, one, of how calculated he usually was with his victims, and two, because Cheryl had actually seen a man riding by her apartment on a bicycle, whom she later said definitely resembled Bundy and could have easily been him. Plus, investigators believed Bundy definitely scoped out the place while planning his attack and before his attack. Then, on the night of the attack, as he approached Cheryl's duplex, he saw a car had broken down on the road right in front of Cheryl's home, and a man was standing outside working on his car. This, of course, spooked Bundy, so he went on down to the Kyle Omega house, and when he was interrupted there by the headlights, he left and went back to Cheryl's. As the investigation continued... Two other critical things happened that were the so-called smoking guns of the case, I guess you would say. First, they had an eyewitness to the man who broke into the Kyle Omega house. 
Nita Neary identified Bundy in a lineup after she did get a good look at his profile inside the house as he was making his exit. And second, remember how Bundy left bite marks on Lisa Levy? Well, they were able to get a search warrant for Bundy's mouth so they could construct a mold of his teeth, which would prove that he, in fact, was the person who bit and brutally killed Lisa and the other women that night. Sheriff Katsaris said, quote, The search warrant for his mouth probably was the first in the nation's history. So I went to a cell one evening. I told him he's coming with me, and he went with me to my dentist's office. The doors opened up. He saw that we were in a dental office. He immediately started screaming, where's my attorney? I want my attorney. You can't do this. He knew exactly what we were going to be doing. Once we read him the search warrant for his mouth, he realized that we could use force. He sat down in the dental chair. He opened his mouth, said, do what you have to do, Ken. You know I'm not a violent person. End quote. The narcissism with this man is unnerving. But guess what? The state brought in four different dental experts to examine the mold and compare the teeth to the bite marks, and all four of them concluded that Bundy was the one who left the marks. Ha, how you gonna get out of that one, Bundy? Oh wait, you didn't. And moving on with the story, Larry Simpson, the retired state attorney in Florida, said Bundy was at home on a college campus, particularly because he had not only attended several colleges in the western part of the U.S., but he attended law school for a while as well. This means that Bundy knew his way around a courtroom. So he used that to his advantage and actually decided to help his defense team in representing himself. But how exactly did he do this, you may ask? Well, this asshole took his own depositions from the witnesses and survivors. This meant that this sorry excuse of a person met with the surviving victims, his surviving victims, face to face. So he could ask them all sorts of questions about the case. This included Karen Chandler, Kathy Kleiner, and Cheryl Thomas. Um, is your anger through the roof yet? I mean, the audacity of this sick prick. Karen said, quote, I think he was acting as the lawyer that he always wanted to be. Since I didn't remember anything about the attack, I think that was helpful. But my feeling at the time was I don't want to show him any fear because I don't want him to think that anything about him bothers me, is under my skin, scares me. I felt like I had done my job. I had answered his questions, and I hope I gave him absolutely no satisfaction, end quote. Kathy said, quote, he was sitting there looking at me and I looked at him and I didn't take my eyes off of him. And he had this smirk on his face and it kind of made my stomach sick. But also I knew I was walking out and he wasn't. And that gave me some power, end quote. Bundy's trial began on July 7th, 1979. And apparently it was a complete media circus. Bundy got so much attention that the spotlight was actually taken off of the survivors, like everybody forgot why Bundy was even on trial in the first place, primarily because it was the first court case to be broadcast live on TV, and also because he was representing himself. Also, and this makes me sick to say the least, his trial attracted a lot of young women who basically were infatuated with him because of his looks and demeanor in the courtroom. One of those young women even gave an interview to the media at the time of the trial. She looked straight into the camera and said, quote, every time he turns around, I kind of get that feeling. Oh no, he's going to get me next. End quote. Ew. What is wrong with these people? <sighs> 
Anyway, Bundy took an active role in the courtroom as well, attempting to represent himself. Actually, Larry Simpson, the prosecuting attorney at the time, even said that Bundy argued his own motions almost as good as any lawyer could. Regardless of the circus show, though, Simpson, as well as Bundy's victims, knew they needed to focus on putting him away for good, no matter how much effort and emotions it took out of them. With this in mind, Karen, Kathy, and Cheryl all took the stand in the courtroom, and they all told the jury exactly what happened to them. Cheryl said she wanted the jury to see a real person, a real victim who had been subjected to what Bundy did. And Karen said it was her mission to tell her truth and for the jury to really hear her story. Kathy, though, said she had to admit in court that she honestly didn't know if Bundy was the man who attacked her that night or not, because, well, she never saw his face in the darkness of the night. She only saw the club and a figure of a man as he swung and bashed her in the head with the object he was holding. Kathy said, quote, I wanted to help put the nail in the coffin, to put him away, to help the other girls who couldn't do it. I couldn't help, end quote. However, one person did see his face, and she too took the stand. That was Nita Neary, who looked at Bundy from across the courtroom. Larry Simpson asked her if she recalled the man she saw at the door of the Kyomega house that night. Nita said, yes, I do, and she pointed directly at Bundy. But perhaps the most damning piece of evidence presented in court was the mold of Bundy's teeth, where they could easily demonstrate that it was him who, quite literally, sunk his teeth into one of his victims that night. Right there in the courtroom, a forensic dentist held up a picture of the bite marks from Lisa's body, and he lined the molds up precisely with the marks, showing how they fit together like a puzzle piece. Larry Simpson actually demonstrated this on his 48 Hours interview, and it blew my mind how much the mold of Bundy's teeth matched up perfectly to the photo of the marks. It's seriously like they fit like a glove, and that's not an exaggeration. On July 24th, 1979, the jury took less than seven hours to deliberate and reach a decision. According to Biography.com, Bundy was found guilty on all counts of first-degree murder of Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy and the attempted murders of Kathy, Karen, and Cheryl. The following week, he was sentenced to death in the electric chair. Then, in January of 1980, Bundy went through another murder trial for 12-year-old Kimberly Leach, where he was definitely found guilty again, and he received yet another death sentence. Thank God. In total, it is believed that Bundy killed at least 20 women in a span of four years, but it was suspected he took even more lives than that. And as you probably know, there is a lot more to Bundy's story than this, that this is just a small chunk of it. But that's not what my podcast is about. So instead of focusing on him, I wanted to focus on the victims in this story, those innocent Florida State students who had to live the rest of their lives with the trauma Bundy inflicted on them or the families of those who he killed that night who had to live the rest of their lives knowing what he did to their daughter. So I want to end this episode with more information about them, the victims, not the terrible human who changed their worlds forever. Cheryl Thomas, after losing her hearing in one ear, wondered if she would ever be able to dance again because her hearing was not all she lost. You see, she was also suffering from balance issues, so she asked her neurologist if he thought she could dance again someday. And he said that was totally up to her. Cheryl said, quote, So then I knew that I had an option of, you know, train my body all over again or I won't dance again. 
I made my decision. I was going to go back and get my degree, end quote. And after that, Cheryl moved to Texas and studied ballet again at another university. Karen Chandler also went back to school, but she decided to go right back to Florida State and back to the Chi Omega house. Actually, she moved into Lisa Levy's old room. She said this was not to be morbid or it wasn't for any type of healing process or cathartic process. It was just literally the only room available at the time. But regardless, all I can say is, wow, this woman blows me away in a totally good way. Karen told the Chicago Times, quote, The alternative to moving out of the house was living at home, hiding, being afraid to go out at night. I really wanted things to be as they had been before. I felt that this was somebody who didn't know me. He wasn't after Karen Chandler. He was after a female body, end quote. For Kathy Kleiner, though, life wasn't quite the same, and she didn't return to college. Instead, she went back to her parents' home for a bit, and then she got married six months later. She said her parents thought she needed someone to protect her, and she was okay with that. Kathy said, quote, After I got attacked, I was afraid of men. It was something that I didn't want to have control me, and I went to work at a lumberyard because I figured that's where I'm going to see the most men, and it worked. That experience helped me a lot, end quote. Okay, y'all, that brings us to the end of Chronicle 14. But I would love to know what y'all think of the stories I'm bringing you. So if you haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts yet, I encourage you to please go do that. Remember, I'm trying to get to 100 reviews by the end of 2021, and I'm still a long ways from that goal. So I really could use your help, even if you just leave like one word, like love it or great. (laughs) But All you have to do is just click those stars and tell me what you think of Campus Crime Chronicles. And right now I want to give a big shout out to the ones who have left reviews. I try to post all of them to my Instagram at Campus Crime Podcast as they come in. So thank you to all of those who have left such kind words. I definitely feel the love. Okay, y'all, that's all for today. Bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.